0: When I had about three months left of my mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I was transferred to an area that I hadn't served in before. It was way out in the boonies of the mission in a rural part of Nebraska. In fact, it was at the time the largest geographical unit in the United States. Uh, And it covered two time zones from Central Time in Nebraska all the way to the Colorado border which was in mountain time and my mission president sat me down before I went out to this new area and he said elder you're gonna be in this area for the last three months of your mission and I want you to be a little careful about how you talk about how much time you have left on your mission so when uh, members or non members investigators ask you how much time you've been on a mission, I want you to tell them a little over a year. Uh, And I said, sure, President, I can do that. Um, But then I got thinking about it and I was thinking, I don't know if I can, in fact, do that. Uh, Because it's not really true that I have only been out a little over a year. Um, I'd been out Actually, right now I can't do the math. But when somebody's asking how long you've been out as a missionary, if you say a little over a year and all you have is three months, it's a little bit dishonest. Uh but at the same time, I had made a commitment to my mission president. And I'd always been taught that part of having exact obedience is following the instructions of your mission president. So uh I sort of tongue in cheek joked about. The implications of all of this with my uh, mission buddies at the time, um, and then ultimately came to this wonderful conclusion that the reason that uh, the mission president had asked me to do so was because missionaries are in a special state when they are in the mission field, a uh, place of uh, spiritual paradise a place of relative innocence and the only way to leave that state of innocence uh, and paradise is to be expelled from it through disobedience and just like god in the book of genesis i are my mission president and the dictates of my conscience had presented me with uh two contradictory Commandments. Thou shalt obey the words of thy mission president, and thou shalt not bear false witness. And so uh, it was up to me to choose which of these two commandments to break, and therefore ultimately be spiritually expelled from my mission uh, within those next three months so that I could return home and start my post mission life. Uh, And so I committed to the bit. I decided to go with the words of my mission president. And every time somebody asked me during those last three months, how long I'd been on my mission, not only did I say a little over a year, but I would sort of make up a history of my mission that only added up to about 13 months. And I really I really committed to it about two weeks before I left. I uh, started telling some members of the branch that I was surfing in, uh, and it was quite a surprise for them when I ended up saying, you know what, actually, I have about two weeks left of this mission time. And uh, yeah, uh, that's that's the way that that it went. And I did get expelled from my mission uh, eventually uh, honorably and uh, went home and started the life uh, that eventually led to the life that I have now. Welcome to I Have So Much More To Say, a podcast where I talk about theology, religion, and my faith journey as I make my way through 2024 and maybe 2025. I don't know why I decided to introduce it in terms of years, but uh, this is the podcast. Uh, I do one take every Saturday and talk about the topics that are on my mind uh, as I sort of navigate uh, my religious experience. And I tell you that story from my mission uh, because it has to do with the central theological story I want to discuss today, the fall of Adam and Eve, but it also uh, poses uh, the same question I want to pose about the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, And that question has to do with how literally we are supposed to take the word of God. Uh, And so the question that I pose for you actually I have two questions that I want to pose for you uh, is one is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their fall from the Garden of Eden intended to be taken literally in the biblical text and in broader religious texts in general. And my second question is, does Christian or Latter-day Saint theology depend on a literal reading of the story of Adam and Eve? Uh, And I don't think I'll conclusively answer either of these questions. So if you're looking for that, maybe this is the wrong podcast for you. Uh, But actually, this uh, question, actually more the first question than the second one, was one that's been on my mind for about a week now because I had a delightful conversation with one of the uh, missionaries investigators in my area, or they call them friends, who had a number of uh, questions about the way that members of our church approach scripture and approach theology. And um, one of the questions he asked was, do you take stories in the Pentateuch or the Torah literally uh, and I said, well, uh, uh, most members of the church do. I would say, uh, I would say that most members, if you were to ask them, was there literally a Garden of Eden and literally an Adam and an Eve that fell uh, from grace? Then they would say yes. But I personally don't know if I do take the story of Adam and Eve literally. Uh, and then then the question has been on my mind is, is, does the rest of our theology fall apart if you don't take it literally? Anyway, here's like one of the reasons why I am starting to not take the, uh, the story of Adam and Eve literally. And it comes down to what the genre of the story of Adam and Eve is in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, This is an important way to study the scriptures and to understand what's really going on is to first identify what's the the genre, what type of literature are we reading when we read a portion of the Bible? And what are the literary expectations of the genre? There are things like wisdom, literature and poetry and myths and legends and uh, theological arguments in the Bible. Uh, letters like the letters of Paul in the Bible and identifying the genre is really helpful for identifying how its original audience would have viewed the, the text itself and uh, the genre of Genesis two and three, which has this story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their fall out of the Garden of Eden, though it doesn't use that word uh, is maybe best described as a mythological ideology a mythological etiology, or origin story. Uh, you can think of other origin stories that might be called things like how the leopard got its spots, or um, how the chicken started laying eggs, or something like that. It, and, and, and a mythical etiology, uh, as found throughout the ancient world, and as Genesis 2 and 3 look like a pretty typical example of, is where uh, an author sees some existent reality in our current world and l- looks backward and creates a story to talk about why those realities exist in our world. Uh, and there are etiologies small and large throughout this section of the text. For example, in Genesis two nineteen, 19, uh, we get an etiology for animal names. Why do all these animals have various names? Well, Adam named them. Uh, in Genesis 2, 20 through 24, we get an etiology for women and kinship. Uh, or if you're Latter-day Saint, you may even think of this as the first marriage. Uh, and why that was established. Why men and women end up in some sort of partnership. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we get an etiology of Uh, wisdom. Uh, That being that uh, the serpent, who is one of the most crafty, it's translated in most uh, translations of all the beasts of the field, convinces Eve, and then Eve convinces Adam to partake of the fruit of a tree known as the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I wanna focus in a little bit on this etiology of how humans gained their wisdom initially. Uh, and there are a couple of words in here that I think are useful to, to think about in a little bit different way. They've certainly helped me. Um, the uh, word, First of all, the word um, serpent. Uh, I didn't even think of defining this one at first, but I think serpent is an important one here because serpents nowhere else in scripture or nowhere else in uh, the ancient world, really, are seen as evil agents. In fact, they're seen as agents of fertility sometimes, and of wisdom. And in fact, the word that I was gonna talk about before even talking about serpent was crafty. uh, This word that sort of has a negative connotation, but doesn't have to. In fact, other places in the Bible where this Hebrew word, uh, the actual word I'm forgetting right now, is used, it's not used in the same negative connotation way. It's used to just refer to wisdom overall. So a wise snake comes to Eve and says, hey, are you sure that uh, that you're going to die when you eat this uh, this fruit? Uh, And In fact, it's interesting to note that while Adam and Eve do not die in the day that they eat the fruit thereof, as God says they will, uh, they do gain knowledge upon eating of the fruit. So in this story, particularly, um, the serpent is being more honest than God. Uh, And there's been a lot of honestly quite petty arguments about this online that I've seen Uh, and throughout history in a less petty sense, Christians and Jews have sort of tried to find ways to wiggle out of uh, what's going on here uh, by maybe defining a day differently or defining some of the grammar differently to say that God is just saying you will be doomed to die instead of that you will die within the day. Or that the timescale is different, like a day is a thousand years in the eyes of God by applying other uh, texts much later written um, to this story. Um, that gets a little bit beyond what I want to talk about now, uh, but if you hear me say that, know that there's uh, a little bit more that goes into it than uh, than just my little comment here. Um but anyway, this is a story about how uh how humans gain their wisdom. Oh, the other part that I was gonna talk about with this this section is the um the name of the fruit of the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As we're gonna see in the Book of Mormon, this is interpreted to be sort of like knowledge of good versus evil, or like uh the ability to like taste the bitter and know the sweet those kinds of things but in reality bible scholars are pretty much in agreement that what this actually is meant to do here is to just say all kinds of knowledge it's like if i were to say knowledge a to z uh that that's another like stand in i'm not just saying hey, the alphabet i'm saying all available knowledge comes through this way um and uh in this mythological ideology, that wisdom is connected directly with rebellion against God, and it's connected directly to uh, suffering in the world. Uh, When Eve and Adam partake of the fruit, they are in rebellion against God's command, and they are uh, pretty much immediately given some negative consequences. An ideology for the suffering that this author likely saw in the ancient world. And especially heart-wrenching are the descriptions of suffering that is a result of uh, sometimes innate, sometimes constructed uh, gender disparity. Uh, As different punishments are doled out to Adam and Eve, we see the author sort of uh, wrestling with the the gender unequal reality, and then going back and creating a story that explains why they think such a reality may have come forth. So the genre itself of the uh, of the story of Adam and Eve leads me to believe that the original author did not intend us to consider this story of Adam and Eve super-duper literally. Um, Instead, uh, its original audience probably saw it as a a loose reality, as a way to sort of describe or grapple with the realities that they find uh, around them. Now, just because something is a myth doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. A myth, or an origin story, or a parable, or a fable, or something like that, those are designed to teach us a truth about the world doesn't necessarily mean they're not factually true, but it, uh, it, it does mean that it's it doesn't also necessarily mean that it is factually true. Uh, another uh, thing that leads me to believe that this story of Adam and Eve is not um, is not meant to be taken literally or or isn't the literal reality of the history of Earth is the uh, structure of Genesis and more broadly, the Pentateuch itself. I'll link in the show notes uh, an article or not an article, a blog post that I uh, wrote a couple of years ago now about something called the documentary hypothesis, which is scholars best uh, estimate of how the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, came to be developed. And it's not that Moses or any single author wrote the text, but instead a number of authors uh, wrote separate texts, some of which may have known about each other, and some of which were uh, maybe written totally separate, that were then redacted or edited together to make the text as we see it now. And there's lots and lots of literary evidence of this. Uh, according to this uh, hypothesis, the documentary hypothesis, uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 through the end, and then Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, uh, at least the first part of verse 2, are a different source than Genesis 2, the second half of verse 2 through through Genesis 3, the end of the chapter. Um, the... Uh, genesis 2 story in which we find adam and eve are is probably the story that was written earlier uh so it was written before genesis 1 uh and it is often referred to as uh the um the yahwist source actually now that i'm thinking about it uh i'm not 100 sure if it's considered the yahwist or the eloist source but that's neither here nor there there's actually debate about how. Um, To clearly delineate some of these sources, but it's definitely different from the source that is Genesis 1 and then picks up in Genesis 4 or 5, um, that is known as the priestly source, where a priestly class of uh, likely Israelite writers are sort of reframing uh, the history of the world and then the history of ancient Israel. Uh, And they kind of seem to be reacting to these uh, these pri- these earlier stories. So in um, in Genesis two, we get sort of a series of how the world is created. Uh, and it starts with the creation of human beings because or at least life starts with the creation of human beings because the text says there was no one to till the earth. So God doesn't even make it start to rain. Until he creates human beings, but the author of the priestly source or the authors of the priestly source um, say, no, no, that's not how it was at all. God created man last man is his crowning achievement. Uh, and so sort of the, the disagreement between these two ideologies, these mythical etiologies, um, leads me to believe that the, the truth as to what literally happened at the beginning of life, nobody really, really knows. But what I think is more interesting is the theological and literary points that these authors are trying to make uh, sort of in correspondence with each other. And I think there's a very, probably the most interesting disagreement, at least for what I want to talk about today, is the ideology of humanity. How humans began or why humans began uh, is different in, um, in Genesis 2 versus Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, verses 5 and 15 give us the etiology of humanity. Verse 5 says, When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. And then verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. The reason God creates man In Genesis 2 is to till the earth. He's created this world. He needs somebody to till it. And so he creates man. And then Adam and Eve fall from the Garden of Eden. They are cast out of the Garden of Eden because they attempt to become like God. And in fact, this is a recurring theme in Genesis. The people who build the Tower of Babel are similarly cursed by God because they try to become like him or the uh, sons of God marrying the daughters of men. There's this pathway to become like God, and God seems to be sort of like batting humanity back down. That wasn't their purpose. They were created beings meant to serve him. Uh, But importantly, in Genesis 1, we get a little bit of a different etiology, a little bit of a different origin story. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Uh, Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, A couple of important differences between this version in chapter 1 versus what is created, what is shown in chapter 2. Some of that I find are just fascinating. For one, in Genesis chapter 1, there's not the creation of man before the creation of woman. The priestly source decides to frame this as God creating male and female simultaneously. Um and uh if you you know look at the way these sources are sort of split up the priestly source picks back up um in chapter five and it basically just has adam and eve created and then they they give birth to seth it skips over the fall and the story of cain and abel Uh, in fact the priestly source seems to frame humanity from the very beginning, as God's crowning achievement, not as sort of a uh, secondary thought, something meant to be of service to uh, to God, um, but that he they are literally created in God's image, um, and this kind of like theological tension, uh, for one, shows me that I think that the the actual reality is not necessarily in the details, but the details are describing things that we see, things that we believe, things that we come to think are true, and then we find a way to uh, literally represent those things. Now, of course, later, uh, Christianity takes hold of this story of Adam and Eve, and they have their own interpretation of it. Interestingly, in the book, um, The uh, History of the Bible by John Barton, he describes the way that Christians have often viewed the Bible versus the way that uh, Jews have viewed the Bible. And it may come as a shock to Christian or Latter-day Saint listeners to hear that Jews don't focus almost at all on this story of Adam and Eve. And then it might not shock you quite as much when you start to think about the rest of the bible throughout the book of genesis there's a lot of callback to the story of adam and eve there's a lot of parallels to the story of adam and eve but once you get beyond that the parallels in the hebrew bible or the old testament start to fall off Um, but in christianity uh, the hebrew bible starts to get framed with the story of Adam and Eve directly in mind. And I think this is actually a product of Paul, maybe the most prolific uh, Christian writer in the first century. Um, Paul teaches in a couple of different places how the uh, story of Adam and Eve relate to the ultimate redemption of Jesus Christ. And I think this is where all Christians ultimately get this connection. Uh, first, I want to go to Romans 5, uh, verse 18. Uh, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's righteousness leads to justification and life for all. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And then perhaps the, uh, the uh, theological argument that defines uh, Paul's Christology comes from Galatians 3, uh, 10 through 14, which uh, I, I think maybe most clearly, even though it's sort of a convoluted argument, uh, defines how it is that Jesus's atonement uh, does in fact make atonement. How it is that he is able to overcome the fall of Adam and Eve through his sacrifice. This is Galatians three ten through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now, it is evident that no one is reckoned as righteous before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on, rest on faith. On the contrary, quote, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. He's quoting uh, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, Paul uh, sort of frames uh, this story of Adam and Eve, uh, and subsequent events, namely the establishment of the law in the Pentateuch, in the the Torah or first books of the Bible um, as this sort of human puzzle that humanity gets into. And the only way out is through Jesus, who um, takes upon him the the curse and then and and dies and then rises from the dead. And Paul has a strong testimony of Jesus's resurrection because he saw Jesus. Uh, I don't want to get too into the Pauline, uh, theology here, but, and Paul's history here, but, uh, Paul as a Pharisee was likely sort of shocked, uh, to see Jesus rising from the dead or risen from the dead and speaking to him because, um, he firmly believed that somebody who's crucified is cursed by God. And so how would somebody who's crucified, uh, rise from the dead, or be blessed by God such that he is resurrected. Uh, And this is sort of the the nugget that turns into his Christology uh, of Jesus overcoming these effects of the Fall, and these effects of humanity's rejection of God's commands. So then the question is, how do Latter-day Saints view the Fall? Uh, and how does the Book of Mormon view the, fo- view the fall? In fact, uh, as much as I'd like to talk more broadly about how Latter-day Saints view the, the fall, um, I really want to focus in on um, on 2 Nephi 2, uh, which I've been focusing a lot of my study on this week, and uh, the, the things that this adds for us. Um, I want to start with 2 Nephi 2, verse 15, uh, and kind of outline some of the the ways that Lehi here in the Book of Mormon is framing the fall. Uh, So this is verse 15, um, and to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after he had created our first parents, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and in fine all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition even a forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. So uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, unlike, I think, Pauline theology, doesn't just say, hey, there's negative effects of the the fall of this partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but instead, the opposition set forth Of there being a tree of knowledge of good and evil versus a tree of life. That's central to God's purposes from the very beginning. Uh, Then, verse 16, we get uh, a very Book of Mormon uh, definition of agency. This is verse 16. Uh, Wherefore, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself, wherefore, man could not act for himself save he should be in enti- save that the save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other uh i think this is an important definition of agency that gets beyond just agency is freedom to choose agency is not just freedom to choose agency as framed by the book of mormon is the power to act for yourself and you cannot have that unless you're enticed by the one or the other so this Opposition is, uh, very importantly, creates the conditions under which humans have the ability to act for themselves. Um, Then verse 21, uh, this is after the fall itself, after Lehi describes Adam and Eve partaking of the forbidden fruit. uh, And the days of the children of men were prolonged according to the will of God, that they might repent while in the flesh. Wherefore, their state became a state of probation, and their time was lengthened according to the commandments which the Lord God gave unto the children of men. Um, for he gave commandment that all men must repent, for he showed unto all men that they were lost because of the transgression of their parents. So another piece of this theology that the Book of Mormon uh, adds is that uh, after the fall, the uh, the lifespan of humans was prolonged in order to give them a space in which to repent, or in other words, to overcome the effects of this rebellion, this fall from God's presence. Um, and then verse 22, uh, and now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, He would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the garden and all things which are created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created and they must have remained forever and had no end. This is an interesting thing uh, that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints take for granted and kind of assume is in the, the Bible, but it actually isn't nowhere in the book of genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 uh where this fall story takes place does uh it say that adam and eve were you know perfectly innocent before the um before the fall um or that they couldn't have progressed w- there in the garden of eden or even that they were trapped in the Garden of Eden and had to take part of the forbidden fruit in order to be released from the Garden of Eden. Or, uh, importantly, that they couldn't have had children uh, while they were in the Garden of Eden. I've always kind of wondered why other churches see the fall of Adam and Eve as such a bad thing. In fact, one time, uh, when I was on my mission again, uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on our door and they talked to us about the, the well their opening question was sort of um it was something like uh wouldn't you love to live in paradise and um we were like yeah that would be great they're like imagine like living in hawaii or something like that and um we were like yeah that would be great and they were like if it weren't for adam and eve that's where we would be right now and as a missionary i was like oh no like uh, if we weren't for Adam and Eve partaking of the forbidden fruit, we wouldn't be anywhere, because, because they wouldn't have been able to have children, because they were innocent, and they didn't have any um, ability to procreate, because uh, sex is a product of knowledge of good and evil, it's maybe even the evil part of the knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of how I understood it at the time. But that's not in the biblical text. Nothing in there says they couldn't have had children while in the Garden of Eden. Um, they certainly could have, if you just take the the word of the Bible, literally. But importantly, the Book of Mormon adds to the story. It adds to the theology here, uh, indicating that if they wouldn't have partaken of the fruit, sure, they would have been in paradise but they would have not been able to progress from that state. Their progression was dependent on their rebellion. Um, Next, I want to do probably the the nut graph, the core paragraph of the entire um, book or chapter of 2 Nephi chapter 2. Verse 25, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Uh, This is the couplet that defines, for Latter-day Saints, a concept of the fortunate fall, which certainly isn't totally unique to Latter-day Saints, but I think is unique uh, among canonical scripture. Uh, The Bible, I don't think, um, has a fortunate fall in it. Um, I I don't know. I think with Genesis 2, uh, which is this non-priestly source, either the Eloist or the Yahwist, I can't remember. Um, if you don't read the the snake as crafty, you read the snake as wise, um, then maybe it is a fortunate fall. Not maybe the fall itself, like the punishment that God gives to Adam and Eve, but the wisdom that they gain by partaking of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, I think maybe from the biblical text, you could get a, an argument that there's a fortunate fall. Um, because it grants humanity wisdom, but not because it grants humanity existence, and not that it grants humanity joy. You could maybe get to Fortunate Fall from the text of the Bible itself, but not in this exact way, because, you know, Lehi is arguing here that uh, Adam's fall was necessary for the, um, for the creation of the rest of humanity and the creation of the rest of humanity has a purpose. And that's that humanity might have joy. Um, then verse 26 and 27 and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God hath given. Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death, According to the captivity and power of the devil, um, a couple of things I think are are interesting in here. Um, the Messiah comes, it says, to redeem all children, all, all the children of men from the fall. Um, and because they're redeemed, they get this this benefit. The benefit is because they are redeemed from the fall, they become free forever, knowing good from evil. But that's actually just a consequence of partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so it's almost the Book of Mormon here reframing the the benefit, the taking of the fruit, the choice to take of the fruit. And then there's a disadvantage to that. There's a consequence for that that comes. And all the atonement of Jesus Christ does here is sort of wipe away the consequence so that humans can get the benefit that they get from partaking of the the fruit of of knowledge of good and evil um and then uh, verse 27 i think importantly builds upon this concept of of uh agency um saying that men are free according to the flesh and all things are given unto them so that they know The difference between good and evil and i think it's with the establishment of jesus and the preaching of the gospel that uh lehi is saying that uh agency has been expanded to its its greatest form where not only is it freedom to choose but it's freedom to choose between choices that uh entice you you've got jesus enticing you on one side and satan enticing you on the other and it's a fully informed choice we're instructed sufficiently to be able to choose between these two um, these two factors there's a book that i read many years ago now that i have on my bookshelf somewhere i could tell you the total title maybe i'll put this in the show notes um called satan's war on free agency and i think it really well defines what agency means in latter-day saint scripture it's not just freedom to choose. It's these things that are outlined in 2 Nephi chapter 2. So I think, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints actually have a lot to bring to the table here. They have a lot of additional theology and additional ideas. Um, and then if you add on beyond just 2 Nephi chapter 2, things like in the Pearl of Great Price, it describing uh, in a little bit more detail events that happen in the Garden of Eden and afterward, then uh, you have some some really interesting things that I think are worth pondering. But the question that I kind of want to end with is, does the theology, these theological principles, does it actually depend on reading the scriptures literally? Or if we view the story of Adam and Eve, as a metaphor as a myth that's not necessarily factually true does does that still allow us to believe in some of these important theological principles and i made a list of theological principles both from uh hebrew bible theology actually i say both from but from hebrew bible theology christian theology and latter-day saint theology uh, and I want to list these out for you, and then I'll, spoiler alert, give you my opinion that the the text doesn't have to be taken literally in order for these theological truths to be realities. Um, here's the list that I made. Uh, we Humanity moves from a static paradise or a static state of innocence to a dynamic wilderness or a... Uh, place of suffering where they can progress. Second, wisdom and suffering are intertwined. Third, the agency of humanity is a a principle of the human condition. Uh, Third, the human condition we find ourselves in includes both inherited and self-directed elements that drive us away from happiness or from God. And the purpose of the atonement of Jesus Christ is to help us overcome both of those elements, both inherited and self-directed. I don't know what number I'm on, but next, it is difficult and possibly impossible to rise to the standards we or our religion or our wisdom, our society, the law set for us, except through the intervention of God, uh, namely through the atonement of Jesus Christ. I think if we think a little bit like the ancients, if we look at these, we we could deduce these sort of principles on our own, from the way that the human condition is, we can say, you know, when we gain in wisdom, most, it's through challenge. Or we can say, we go from a state of childlike innocence to a state of uh, dynamic growth that's in sort of a wilderness of life um we could we could start at those sort of like conditions that we see and we could work backwards and craft a story like the story of adam and eve and it may be different if we were to do such a thing it may be different in details To the story of Adam and Eve. But I think that uh, it would be the same in the underpinning truths that are in that story. And I think the great benefit of scripture is that you have uh, ancient wisdom that has withstood the test of time, that has done this exercise in advance. And if you're religious or you believe in the the Bible as the word of God or the book of Mormon as the word of God, then you believe not only does it withstand the test of time, but it withstands the test of testimony. It, uh, it is verifiably true uh, at its core, not just factually true through the witness of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Um, and it reveals things about the, the world we find ourselves in that it would take us a long time to deduce on our own, if we're even wise enough to deduce them on our own. Um, and so it allows us to sort of like go back to the process that, that, uh, that these ancient writers, uh, deduced and get their wisdom out of it and work within that wisdom and find ways to become better humans through that wisdom. Um, I do think that, uh, that the story of Adam and Eve, um, probably isn't a literal truth, literal fact I'll say. Um, But I think that another great um, truth of scripture, doctrine, theology, whatever the word is, um, is that maybe the easiest way to find your way into the wisdom behind the stories is to go into it assuming uh, fact. Um, And in fact, in fact, I think that um, that the way that that my life certainly has progressed, it it wouldn't have worked to start off by thinking that it was a myth that wasn't factually true. I think it it often like the way that our brains progress through spirituality often requires that we start by assuming literalism and that we progress to the wilderness, to bring it back to this truth that's behind this story in the first place. We start in a state of sort of innocent acceptance of the scriptural text as it is presented to us. And then we move into a, a place of seeing it with different eyes and seeing it maybe not as literal and then we find the truth behind the truth and i don't think that uh not seeing it literally is not taking it seriously in fact i think that ultimately even though we probably have to start by taking these sorts of things literally just brain developing i'm not going to tell my kids Uh, Oh, Adam and Eve actually probably didn't happen. (laughs) Um, I think we all eventually have to go into the wilderness. We all eventually have to uh, get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And in that wilderness, by the sweat of our brow, we need to find the, the deeper, more resonant universal truths in Scripture if you enjoyed this podcast or if you have thoughts disagreements uh comments anything uh please let me know uh give me a rating or review uh positive or negative whatever the case may be uh if you know me please reach out directly that would be awesome uh maybe i should come up with like a email address for the podcast itself although uh the podcast audience is pretty small, I happen to know. Um, And I kind of assume that you all know me. If you don't know me, leave a review and just say that. That would be nice for for me to know. But I I think I could count the people who listen and I know who you are. Uh, And with that being said, thank you for being who you are. Uh, Thank you for coming along with this. Uh, I'm going to keep it up uh, because I have so much more to say. (laughs) Thanks, everybody.